Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach. Give me great food. Tacos. Give me adventure. Hiking. Give me a date night. Sunset cruise. Give me some smiles. Cheese. Give me more beaches. Beaches. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Food 360 with Mark Murphy is a production of iHeartRadio. When women started entering the workforce, convenience foods really blew up, and especially breakfast foods because it was a meal that children could prepare for themselves. And that was when breakfast cereal, as we know it today, really hit the mainstream. That's the beauty of the diner business, I think, being a member of the community, being a member of the neighborhood. My favorite part is watching the little ones grow up. In 17 years, I've watched kids go from diapers to almost college, so it's been pretty amazing, you know. Welcome to Food 360, the podcast that serves up some serious food for thought. I'm your host, Mark Murphy. Some of you may know me as a chef and a New York restaurateur. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about breakfast. Now, I've cooked up plenty of breakfast in my life, and I think I know a thing or two about the subject, but I want to hear from people whose careers literally revolve around it. At the top of the show, you heard from my guests today, Heather Art Anderson and Teddy Carunos. I spoke to Heather first. She's an author and food writer from Portland, Oregon. Her first book, Breakfast of History, explores the origins of the first meal of the day and how it eventually evolved into a gastronomic spectacle. Heather, thanks so much for joining me today. Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me. So I've read in the Middle Ages, breakfast used to be considered a sin. Do you know much about that? Yeah, in the Middle Ages, they considered eating breakfast to be too close to the previous meal because people were still eating dinner at around 10 p.m. back in those days. And it got attached to gluttony, which, as we know, is one of the seven deadly sins. No minor infraction. But, you know, people would also go to bed and then wake up in the middle of the night, get up and do stuff, have a little snack, and then go back to bed. And so the way we structure our days now is very different than how it was a few hundred years ago. So today, the way breakfast is, people get up, they have breakfast, they do lunch, they do dinner. When did that sort of transition into being that was the norm? Well, people started eating breakfast again more regularly after the reformation of the church, but also it coincides with the introduction of caffeinated beverages to Europe. When coffee and tea and chocolate arrived on the scene, 
They started changing rules really fast to make allowances for these things. And then we have this other great meal that's brunch. When did that come about? Because I heard somebody came up with that because they were hungover or something like that. Yeah, our friend Guy Berenger, Guy Berenger, he wrote a manifesto about it, basically a plea for brunch. And it basically came down to a complaint that breakfast was too early, which agree, you know, it's too early. Having brunch gives the opportunity to take the edge off of your hangover with a little hair of the dog. And so it's the morning meal in which a little bit of alcohol, you know, nothing too heavy, but certainly a cocktail is allowed. And uh, it's at a merciful time of day. It's a little later in the morning. Also, at this time in history, people were not going to church as often. You know, it's the late 19th century. And going to church every Sunday, bright and early, was less consistently practiced by the masses. And so it was a little bit more socially acceptable to sleep in on a Sunday. And this was just, you know, a chance for people to get together and while away a Sunday morning, maybe talk about the kind of trouble they got into the night before and just have a nice relaxed meal that kind of progresses from little nibbly pastries up to the heavier fare. But, you know, people didn't really want to eat a bunch of meat and eggs first thing in the morning, especially on a squirrely stomach after you've been out drinking. So I think that Mr. Berenger's plea was a good one. And it's interesting as I have restaurants and, you know, we serve brunch on Saturdays and Sundays. Obviously, economically, we sort of have stretched it out because it's a good profit margin for us. Eggs are pretty inexpensive. You can make some good money on brunch. So we do it on Saturdays as well as Sundays. But it does still feel like Sunday is the brunch day. And there's certain towns I feel like they're like, oh, it's a big brunch town. Yeah, Portland, Oregon's a big brunch town, actually. We've been mocked for it on Portlandia. And rightly so. I mean, we have a lot of brunch places and most even nice restaurants will do brunch on the weekends because, as you mentioned, it's good for your margins. It's a low cost. The meal goes quickly and people, even McDonald's, makes a lot of money off their breakfast. But in Portland, people will stand for hours waiting to get into a place to get chicken and waffles or biscuits and gravy And the episode on Portlandia, there was a breakfast restaurant literally across the street. I think that was Ed Bagley Jr. was was the brunch cook. And he was like, hey, you know, there's got lots of seats over here, but people would just rather stand in line. It's like part of their brunch experience. And this is something where I, you know, as a Portland native... Yeah, it's pretty funny. So obviously one of the things, well, a couple of things that go with brunch is the Bloody Mary and the mimosa. So I hear that it's the 85th birthday of the Bloody Mary. When did this come about? Well, so two different guys claimed the invention of this cocktail, but juice started becoming a really common part of breakfast around the 20s. And so I think that when people were looking at ways to enjoy alcohol in the morning, adding juice seemed like an acceptable way to kind of get alcohol's foot in the door at the breakfast table. But I don't think that the Bloody Mary was initially invented as a brunch beverage. I think it was just a sort of nourishing, invigorating cocktail. And yeah, tomato juice was kind of on trend back then. All of the other ingredients, though, were added by a a later dude. The first guy who claimed to have invented it it was just vodka and tomato juice. But then Pete Petio, I think, is the one who added all of the horseradish and celery salt and Worcestershire. And I'm not sure exactly when this garnishing extravaganza began, but I've seen some pretty crazy stuff put on a Bloody Mary. (laughs) 
hamburgers, pieces of pizza. <laughs> it's gone a little far. I actually judged a Bloody Mary competition once for a food festival. And when they were calling them meat sticks were sticking out of it, I was like, okay, yeah. we've definitely <laughs> gone too far here. The whole I lobster. A, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then we've also, you know, I travel a lot. I love going out and seeing the world. And to me, first of all, different countries obviously have different traditions for breakfast. And then there's also the different traditions for the breakfast hangover meal. Like I was in Turkey and everybody's like, oh, you got to go have this thing. It's made out of lamb intestines. And when you come out of a club late, it's street food and they cut it up and they put it on this big roll of bread and it's great for a hangover. But there's also the tradition of breakfast in all these different countries, which I'm fascinated over. I kind of eat breakfast like a Southeast Asian. I tend to eat noodles and soup and stewy things for breakfast. I also have a confession that I don't eat breakfast first thing in the morning. I actually like just have coffee I go work out for an hour and then I come home and eat at like 1030. I usually just make myself a bowl of like kimchi stew or a bowl of some spicy noodles. But um, that's pretty consistent with some of the hangover foods you see in other parts of the world. There's a lot of times spicy foods, something kind of stewy. You know, you want something wet in your stomach so your stomach's not working too hard. But I feel like a lot of the hangover cures I see, you know, menudo is a good hangover cure. That's another spicy offal dish, you know, pretty similar to what you said that you had in Turkey. And also a lot of national dishes in the world are breakfast dishes. And so I think that breakfast has really cemented itself as part of the national culinary identity or the culinary vernacular of different countries. And that was something that I... found pretty interesting. Yeah. When I was in, uh, I think I was in Lima, somebody told me that the breakfast there that people eat is like a chicken stock of some sort with big pieces of chicken and all these things in it. And they said that's what people usually eat for breakfast, but it's also a, a hangover remedy. I have to admit my favorite hangover remedy is the kanji. Yeah. I was in China and I was with these people and they're like, oh, let me show you this great breakfast food. It's called kanji. Have you ever seen this? I'm like, oh my gosh, I eat that in Chinatown in New York City all the time. I love it. Yeah. I love jok and kanji. And that's another thing, you know, a lot of these stewy things things that are great for hangover cures or for brunch, you can kind of just leave them cooking overnight over a low fire. And so that adds another layer of convenience to it. You don't have to do anything. It's just sitting there in your kitchen already. You mentioned cereal in your book and how it's we're, we're pretty unique here in America and I think basically invented it. But I think the story of how it was invented, if you could go into it a little bit, I think it's super interesting and it makes me want to run home and try and see if this works because it's very cool. Yeah, you know, it's one of those happy accidents that so many good things come from. Will Keith and John Harvey Kellogg, who were running a sanitary in Battle Creek, Michigan. This was like a day spa or you could stay there longer to get healthy and clean. It was mostly upper class people. They would stay and have the spa breakfast. And so the Kellogg boys were experimenting with some wheat porridge and it got a little too dried out on the stove because they had to step away from the kitchen. So they thought they could try rolling it out into sheets and see if they could use it that way. But it just kind of crumbled apart into these little flakes And so, you know, they were smart and resourceful dudes and they decided to give it a shot anyways and served it to their clientele and the folks at the San loved it. And so they started producing it on purpose. So things get a little tricky then though, because they started adding corn and other grains that go rancid quickly. They have a shorter shelf life. And Will Keith Kellogg, he was an industrialist and a businessman, whereas John Harvey Kellogg was a doctor. They're both Seventh-day Adventists. So they're, they're vegetarians. They're really kind of keen on clean living and health. What we think of as hashtag clean eating today. Will Keith Kellogg 
had his eye on the bottom line, which was moving product. And so he wanted to add preservatives, sugar and salt to extend the shelf life of this cereal product. And John Harvey Kellogg was absolutely adamant that that not happened. He really wanted it to be a healthful and nutritious product that didn't have any added preservatives. And the disagreement was this permanent fraternal rift that I think they died estranged from each other. Well, Keith Kellogg, of course, founded the Kellogg's company, which is still pretty well known today, whereas John Harvey Kellogg just maintained his sanitarium and was writing health magazines. And it really blew up from there. In fact, cornflakes now have so much sugar in them that you can't get them on WIC, on the women's, infants and children's government subsidies. It's too high in sugar to qualify as a breakfast food. That's amazing. I mean, I didn't know that there was such a tear-jerking story behind the invention of cereal of just upset (laughs) with each other over the cornflakes. You know, a lot of interesting breakfast breakthroughs happened around World War II, well, between World War I and World War II, when women started entering the workforce, convenience foods really blew up, and especially breakfast foods because it was a meal that children could prepare for themselves. And that was when breakfast cereal, as we know it today, really hit the mainstream. And actually, you know, breakfast cereals were the first products that were directly advertised to children. Marketing changed because of that. And it was just because of the shift in demographics of the American workplace. And wasn't there also a response in World War II for bacon, and it was sort of like a byproduct at one point? Well, actually, it comes a little earlier than that. It was the 20s. And if you want to start talking about Edward Bernays, the guy behind the bacon and eggs marketing, we can certainly get into that. I would love to hear about it. Edward Bernays is a really kooky guy. So he's the nephew of Sigmund Freud. He's considered the father of PR in America And he had been hired by various companies. We can thank him for getting women to smoke Lucky Strikes. He was the one who came up with the nickname Freedom Torches. But the Beechnut Corporation, they were making ham and bacon and cured meat products. And this is around the time when the Kellogg's are still pretty big. That kind of Adventist, clean living food, a lot of whole grains, juice, toast, that kind of stuff is what people are normally having for breakfast. And so Beechnut wants to try to get meat back on the breakfast table. They hire Bernays, who comes up with this idea of polling doctors. And so he polls 5,000 doctors. He asks, would you agree that a hearty breakfast is more healthful than a light breakfast? And doctors, you know, largely agreed. Yes, having a hearty breakfast is better for you than having a light meal. And then he says, well, would you consider bacon and eggs to be a hearty American breakfast? And they're like, well, yes. And so then he extrapolated and says, you know, 5,000 doctors agree that bacon and eggs is a hearty, healthy breakfast. And so he was one of the first people to use expert testimony. And, you know, it's funny, for all of the products he was hired to promote, he lived 103. I mean, that's a long age for a dude who's basically getting rich promoting cigarettes and bacon. But I did think it was pretty funny after his campaign went viral uh, or whatever the 1920s version of virality is, the American Heart Association was formed within a couple of years. It's pretty funny how that panned out. Two quick questions for yourself. Links or patties when it comes to sausage? Oh, man. Um, I really do like a patty. And how do you do your eggs? Sunny side up, over easy? Because there's a million ways to do it. Yeah, I so I raise hens. I have chickens in my backyard. That's another Portland cliche, but I have backyard chickens. And I like a sunny side up over medium. I like the yolk to be creamy, but I want the whites set. 
Right. That's exactly the way I like it. And what are the names of your chickens? Because I heard that's something in Portland, right? Oh, God, yes. Yeah. So I've got Zelda, Yorda, Sansa, Arya, and Peach. Oh, my God. That show is right. That show is right. <laughs> you guys name your chickens. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Mark. More on Food 360 right after this quick break. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a golf course. 70 courses. Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Welcome back to Food 360. 16 years ago, I built my first restaurant in New York City. It was called Landmark. And when you're building a restaurant, you obviously need to eat, and the restaurant has no food in it yet. So lucky for me, there was the Square Diner right across the street. And that's where I met Teddy. Teddy Carunos. He's the owner of the Square Diner in New York City's Tribeca neighborhood. He took over the restaurant from his father-in-law after he ran it for 30 years. If anyone knows diner food, it's Teddy. So, Teddy, thanks for being here today. I was just wondering, do you um, remember my first order of the day when I used to go to work? First of all, thanks for having me on. And, uh, of course, I remember what the sandwich was. It was a ham and egg on a roll. And that ham and egg on a roll, I remember sometimes I would sit at the counter and eat it. But most of the time, I would get it wrapped up because it goes first in a piece of parchment paper and then in tin foil. And then I used to stick it in my pocket and walk across the street. That's right. And I always found that it was better when it sort of steamed for about five or six minutes, maybe in my pocket, in the parchment and everything. I feel like when you eat it at the counter, all those flavors didn't meld together together. And that's the way I really, really liked it. Do you ever hear that story from anybody that they like their breakfast sandwich steamed in their pocket? Well, that's why they wrap it in the parchment paper, right? To get the heat onto the bread instead of just going straight to the aluminum foil. So it's kind of like an extra layer of insulation. Breakfast and diners, I feel like they're synonymous. Do most people think diners are just for breakfast? I believe that they do, especially with our place, which is a very small place. And we don't offer that extensive diner menu. 
with, uh, you know, pasta, saute, stuff like that. Right. So, you know, most of my customers, uh, a lot of my regulars, the, the children especially, they don't think of me as a, a place where they would eat dinner. They think of me, oh, this is our breakfast place. And they've said that to me before. It bothers me a little bit because, you know, we are a full-scale <laughs> restaurant. But, of course, breakfast is one of our specialties, if not our main specialty. And you even have a liquor license. You have bottles up there. Of course, I've, of course. I've... you got to serve those Bloody Marys at brunch if you want to do any real profit in New York anymore. A very important part of brunch is definitely the Bloody Mary. Now, your place, the Square Diner, that place is just a classic New York diner. How would you describe it? It was built by Cullman Dining Car Company in the 40s and the 50s. It's an original train car style diner. Now, it's not a real train car, obviously. And if you came in and entered the restaurant, you'd see that it's very, very tiny. It's actually probably smaller than a train car. So it's an original and we've kept it that way. Sometimes I want to tear the place apart and, you know, remodel, but it can be difficult to run a restaurant that has 70-year-old fixtures in it. It's a classic old school place and the character and the architecture is part of the experience, and which is why we've left it. Talking about the character and the architecture, the experience. Now, if you remodeled, you would lose a huge part of your business. And from what I know, because every once in a while you pull up to the diner and you can't go in because Law & Order is shooting there. How many times has Law & Order shot in your diner? Well, last year alone, it was three times. So we've been very, very fortunate with the filmings. As a matter of fact, last year we did over 10 different filmings. We had Ray Donovan in there three times from Showtime. We had Quantico from ABC. We had Bull from CBS. If you want old school New York, the Square Diners kind of got the market on that. I mean, everything nowadays is a, a glass box with 12-foot ceilings. So the Square Diner is very unique in that sense. Yeah, you're going to be able to close down. It's just going to be a movie set right now. You, you won't even have to serve diner food anymore. That'd be, be a lot easier. I, I wish there were that many filmings, but uh, unfortunately, no. <laughs> so you guys serve breakfast all day. And I mean, I can come in there at night and get an omelet or my beautiful ham and egg sandwich on a roll. But I think that the fast food chains are catching on to your trick because I read about fast food places and they're serving breakfast, but they're also serving breakfast all day. Do you think they're coming after your business? Oh, for sure. I think that especially if I wanted to call out one particular fast food place, I'd say McDonald's has been dining itself up for the last 10 years. The introduction of grilled chicken, the introduction of salads, breakfast all day a couple of years ago, and their sales keep going up because I think that diner model works very, very well. And people love their eggs. You know, I don't think eggs is limited to just breakfast anymore. Well, as far as I'm concerned, you already know how to do breakfast really well. You should just open up a diner fast food place and then you'll take care of everything. Well, I, you know, <laughs> it, it's funny. I love the fact that they're doing it because they're not going to do it the way that we do it. I don't think you're ever going to walk into a fast food place and have... 15 or 20 different options for your omelet and being able to order it any way that you like. The flexibility that we exhibit is very difficult to replicate, especially in a fast food type of business model. Well, I have to say that for a restaurateur such as myself, I obviously have a restaurant here in Manhattan. You seem to have made it difficult for us because when we do brunch, people just expect that you can get your eggs any way they want because they're in New York City and they usually go to a diner. For example, there's over easy, there's sunny side up, there's over hard, over medium, over... How many ways can you make an egg? And by the way, you guys in the diner nail it every time because you do that so well and you do that all the time. So for myself, my line cooks in my restaurant twice a week, we do brunch and all of a sudden we get these very specific orders for eggs were like, oh, they should just go to the diner if they want it, especially <laughs> that way, because they'll make it much better than we do sometimes. Uh, I think it's just a matter of what the kitchen is used to. 
our kitchen is doing breakfast all day, every day. So the grillmen, I guess professionally you would call them short order cooks. That's their specialty. They're going to make the eggs any way someone asks for them. And the multiple substitutions and the multiple combinations are what they learn to expect when they train for the job. Right. And, and you said there's like a special agency in New York that you can get these short order cooks. They know the lingo. They know how to come in and bang it out. If they have a job, they can go there for a week. Or if you need a temp, you have those people in your pocket. Well, there are several agencies, but it has been getting a little more difficult these last few years. The diners are... I don't want to say they're vanishing, but I definitely feel that there are fewer of them because of, I think, the difficulty in running a diner restaurant. Business is not easy, let's face it. We all know that. Now, regulars. I want to talk about regulars because you obviously have a lot of regulars. You know everybody in Tribeca, I think. <laughs> Do you walk around the street and cross somebody on the street and go, two sugars light? Like, that's that guy. And <laughs> that guy wants his coffee black. And this guy wants his tea with a splash of milk and sweet and low. You, you know everybody's order, right? It's a wonderful thing to have so many people from the neighborhood be your patrons. And of course, a lot of people are creatures of habit. So they like to get the same thing over and over again, just like you do. Uh, <laughs> you know, just you could come in and order bacon one time in your sandwich, I, I might fall over. But uh, that's the beauty of the diner business. I think being a member of the community, being a member of the neighborhood, my favorite part is watching the little ones grow up. In 17 years, I've watched kids go from diapers to almost college. So yeah, it's well, been pretty amazing. My, my kids have eaten there and I've seen your kids grow up. And what's the strangest regular order that you know right off the top of your head? The one that really pops out with me is that I had a, a guy who just loved eating French toast with ketchup, which I just couldn't understand. <laughs> I mean, never wanted the butter, never wanted the syrup, just ketchup on the French toast. Uh, another thing that always confused me, but I guess that's because of my personal preference, lox and onion omelets. I never understood them, Ooh. but they're pretty popular. So why wouldn't I offer it? You know? Lox and onion omelets. Yes. They're, they're probably single. I mean, <laughs> they're really. certainly not looking to get kissed after their meal. That's for sure. Right? Well, how do you eat your eggs? How do I eat my eggs? I'm an over-easy guy. I like my over-easy eggs. I like a little runny yolk. Yeah, I do too. I like the yolk to be runny. I feel like if it's overcooked, it's not really working for me. This has been fun, but I have one other thing because I know that there's such a thing as diner lingo, right? And I think it was more prominent before you got a point of sale system. But back when I was there, I would sit there and listen to you with all the lingo and there's all this sort of diner language. And I wrote out a couple of them and I'm going to quiz you on some of these. Okay, great. You, you, got, you got a second? Let's see if I still remember. Of okay. Reckham. Reckham. Break the yolk, I would guess. That, uh, that one's not one I'm familiar with. But yes, I, I, look, I went on the internet and found this. Okay, so maybe <laughs> okay. these maybe these aren't all right. City juice or dog soup? City juice or dog soup? I've never heard of that one. Uh -uh. Water. Water. It's supposed to be water. Oh, okay. okay. There we go. <laughs> Make it cry. Make it cry. Runny eggs would be my. Uh, yeah, it says here add onions. I've never heard of that one either. Maybe, wow, you're may, stumping me. May, here. Maybe I went to the wrong website. <laughs> Adam and Eve on a raft? Adam and Eve on a raft is two poached eggs on toast. Okay. That, one, that one's a classic. Bronx vanilla? Bronx vanilla. Hmm. It says here garlic. Garlic? Oh. Uh, <laughs> okay. Dough well done with a cow to cover. A toasted bun? Uh, uh, it's toasted, to uh, toasted a bun for a hamburger? Buttered toast. How do you say buttered toast? You, you had a saying for that. Well, name. no. Whiskey down is what we used to say for rye toast because okay. rye sounds a lot like white. And so when you were calling out the orders, if you were going to call out rye toast, a lot of times it would be mistaken for white. So they would say whiskey down. I mean, that's that's some pretty incredible lingo. I don't, I've never heard that used before in it, my 17 it, years. I'm sure that it's probably different everywhere. I'm, I've just got one more for you because okay. this is probably my favorite and I've never heard it anywhere. It's just Noah's boy with Murphy carrying a wreath. With Murphy carrying a wreath? You just threw that one in there, didn't no, you? No, 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 no. <laughs> it's, it's ham and potatoes with cabbage. 
Oh, that's interesting, and, right? I've never served ham and potatoes with cabbage before. I've served corned beef and cabbage as a special, of course, always around St. Patty's Day. What other short terms did you use to use? Uh, stack back would be something you'd use for pancakes with bacon. That's pretty much it. I mean, when I came in, you know, we put in the computer ordering system because there were so many difficulties with ordering by voice. And that lingo is, you know, going the way of the dodo, unfortunately. I, I used to remember the frustration sometimes. You'd look at the thing and it was like, this was to go. It's supposed to be in the tin and this and that. Well, I got to say, you know, thanks so much for coming over here and, and chatting. I say, if anybody's in New York City, the Square Diner, if he's not shooting an episode of Law & Order, <laughs> they're usually always open, but it's a great place for breakfast. You want a real New York City experience, go have breakfast at the Square Diner. Thank you. Thank you very much for saying that. I appreciate it, Mark. Thanks for coming by. Thanks for having me. So that's it on breakfast. I hope you all enjoyed. I also want to thank today's guests, Heather Art Anderson and Teddy Carunos. And we'll see you next time. Food 360 is a production of iHeartRadio, and I'm your host, Mark Murphy. A very special thanks to Emily Carpin, my director of communications, and producers Nikki Etor and Christina Everett. Mixing and music by Anna Stumpf and recording help from Julian Weller and Jacopo Benzo. Thank you to Beth Ann Macaluso and Kara Weissenstein for handling research. Food 360 is executive produced by Mangesh Hetikador. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 